Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who are interested in transforming their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. Today's episode of The Forest Garden is really a special one, at least for Ben and myself. In this episode, we interview Jonathan Bates, who, with his friend Eric Tonesmeyer, designed and stewarded Paradise Lot in Holyoke, Massachusetts for many years. This biological oasis, smack dab in the middle of a semi-urban environment, really inspired me to pursue an entirely new career path. It's our hope that this episode similarly inspires you. It's nice to get connected with you, Jonathan. I've been following uh, your work and Eric's work for quite some time right now. And when Mike suggested you, I thought you'd be great guest for the podcast. So I'm looking forward to learning more about what you're working on nowadays. Uh, so you're, are you in New York now or where are you, you based? Yeah. So we moved to New York just outside of Ithaca and Brooktondale, New York, a little over five years ago. Yeah, one of my two, well, two of my lab mates here are from, I think that area from like the Ithaca area. I've been sort of surprised to learn uh, about the community there that, that exists for whether it's perennial vegetables or tree crops, homesteading. I didn't really, you know, when I moved away from New England, I wasn't part of that community. So I'm surprised to hear that sort of everything is alive and well up there. How, how do you like New York? Uh, it's really amazing. I, I moved with my family, my wife, Megan, and my son, Jesse, who's nine. We moved for lots of reasons, but one of them to be closer to Megan's families. She's got a pretty great network of family here. Megan's dad comes from a farming family and they and he has been stewarding about 70 acres for the last 30 years organically you know we had a sense that we might inherit some of that and we did we inherited 10 acres of it two years ago great i'm sure you have plenty of ideas if you haven't already of what you're going to be doing on that site yeah it's already started yeah sure i'm sure you don't waste too much time that's so exciting Maybe, maybe now we should kind of transition into the, you know, formal beginning of the episode. So Jonathan, how did you sort of get started in this world of plant nerdery that we exist within? Thanks for having me here tonight. This is really a, a privilege and to be able to talk a little bit about myself and help others. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've kind of considered myself an environmentalist for most of my life. I'm, I'm 47 now. I'd say I really got into regenerative ag, permaculture, organic agriculture back in around 2001, where I met Eric Tonsmeyer. You know, we, we collaborated on some gardens in Massachusetts for a few years together and then realized that we were a good match and as friends and colleagues and gardeners. So we, we decided to jump in with some property in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And that's where really, really things took off. Eric was writing with Dave Jackie, the Edible Forest Gardens book. That's where Eric really became a well-known author. He, then he wrote Perennial Vegetables. And during the period where, where those two books were happening, that's where I really started to be inspired by the idea of perennial systems as a both a healer for humans and 
the biodiversity that it helped, you know, regenerate and also a opportunity for community to be inspired and heal as well. That's really what sold me on the potential of perennial ag systems and perennial gardens, food systems. And I could go on, but I, I think I'll just say, and, and you can ask your next question is the experiment we had in Holyoke was pretty amazing in lots of ways. But I think one of the things that really set out for me was we went into it with an idea and some assumptions, you know, planting 300 species of useful and edible plants on a tenth of an acre with the hope that it would, something would happen, particularly meeting some goals and, you know, the, the idea of if you're designing a food forest or edible garden or home garden in the image of an, a, a native ecosystem that you, that you could, that things would pop, like you could really see and experience and, and be in nature, quote unquote, in a, in a different way. And that, and that really happened. It was a dream or a philosophy or, or a, a theory or a idea. And then it came into reality and it actually happened. And that to me is really what got me going and, and why I'm still doing it after all these years. It's really inspiring to hear that you sort of set out to achieve these goals and were able to achieve them. Would you attribute that to, you know, really proper side analysis and design early on? Or was it just the fact that you guys were just so passionate about what you were doing that it evolved as it went into something that, you know, was able to, to meet that finish line or that those goals that you set up? Yeah, it was a combination. I mean, we, you know, we were really geeky in the beginning with, our garden was a case study in the edible force gardening book that Dave and Eric wrote. And, you know, we really took it to the, the detailed design process. And, you know, if anyone's interested to kind of get into the nitty gritty of how that happened, I would, I would check out those books. I realized once we started putting the system in place based on the assessment and the goals, and we really lived in it, it really was the ecology, the ecosystem, the, the interactions, the relationships between all the animals and plants that really made it pop. And I think who knows really what, what's going on. We don't really know as human beings really the extent of it, but I really feel like it would, the diverse, the diverse relationships between all the parts that if the diversity and, and the opportunity for interaction wasn't there, it wouldn't have been as successful. Both, I guess, both with the plants and animals and humans being an animal in that system, like the community that was inspired and engaged with the system was pretty amazing too. Yeah, that seems like a component that gets left out quite a bit when people are talking about forest gardens or community gardens or perennial systems is the, the human element of it and making sure that, you know, the stakeholders are involved in the design process and are able to maintain what's being designed and built. And as far as the, just the perenniality of, of the system that you were working with, you mentioned before that you see perennial systems as a healer for humans. And I'm just wondering, you know, it's not some, it's something that I can, I believe intrinsically, but I haven't really heard discussed too often. Like, is could you give an example or just your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty broad and detailed. You know, there's lots of lots of aspects to that, but 
I think in general, you know, obviously there's the food piece, you know, we got 80% of our fresh greens and berries covered by the garden throughout most of the year. So, you know, we really were eating healthy, nutritious food. I think there was also the healing of, of the thousands of people that passed through that landscape over the years. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating there. It really was thousands of people. I, you know, even in the books too, it wasn't just people in person physically. It was, it was the people reading the experience and watching videos too. And then there's the healing of the, the landscape to the point where the soul, you know, like you can, you can stand in the place and really feel the, I wouldn't call it energy, but you, you just knew that it, there was something going on. It's, you know, so green and healthy and thriving. And there was birds and other animals that wouldn't have been there otherwise. And frogs and newts. This is like a mile from downtown Holyoke, which in some ways is part of the Rust Belt collapse from the 70s and still is. You know, it was, it was quite, we, we even had, I don't know if it was in the book or not, but we even had a, a wild turkey come in and within the first five <laughs> years, just waddled into the, to the backyard at one point. That was pretty impressive. Wow. What stamp of approval on the yes. land, the ecosystem that you've created. Yes. When you were talking about healing and the ways that that site really impacted wide swaths of people, I mean, part of the reason, or I guess the main thing that got me into this whole world was just seeing some video on YouTube of you being interviewed in the bio shelter. And then I'm pretty sure that Ben's introduction was reading Edible Forest Gardens for the first time. So, I mean, the two of us, this podcast is is literally a testament to like that experience with us. And it definitely, I would, I mean, I would call it sort of a healing journey. I was in a, a totally different place, at least for me, I was in a totally different place before I started getting interested in this world of perennial edibles and whatnot. So I don't know. I just thought I should bring that up, that what we're doing right now is a result of, of um, what you two did before. I feel like the first thing that came to mind when you, when you said that as healing or, or just maybe helping us change our philosophy or change our mindset when you're dealing, when you're switching over from dealing with annual systems or you know typical vegetable gardens to food forests and the things that you design and that you talk a lot about, it makes me think intrinsically, it makes me think long-term about what am I investing into? And in some cases, do I want to be investing in things that I might not be around to see? And you you know, the answer is yes, definitely. But I think before I got into working with, you know, perennial systems for with trees, shrubs, you know, it was, it was more just like, let's see how quickly we can make food and grow food. And now it's like, okay, well, we'll grow some food for now, some food for later and some food for a generation or two generations away. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe Mike, you mentioned the bio shelter, which I think I saw, you know, I, I watched, I think a few videos with you, Jonathan, where I, I remember you discussed the, the greenhouse system that you have and some of the unique ways you use thermal mass to, to grow things in Holyoke that you wouldn't necessarily be able to grow, you know, unprotected or without considering the microclimate. Could you, you know, talk a little bit about the, the work that you did designing that the greenhouse and the thermal mass and what, what it allowed you to grow? Yeah. So I think in the Northeast, at least for the next 20 years or so, we're going to need to remember that 
season extension is is important for these systems and for health of humans because the six, five, four months of winter for many cold climates around the world, you know, they can't, we can't depend on faraway food necessarily. So the bioshelter, you know, I, I was kind of studying and interested in the bioshelter back when I was in Vermont in the early 2000s. And then when I got to, to Holyoke, Eric and I knew that we wanted some kind of greenhouse for sure. And then, you know, I, I don't think, I don't know if, I think it is in the book. So in Paradise Lot, we talked briefly about the, the snowtober where a, a tree next door partially collapsed on our first greenhouse. That inspired us to, to turn a problem into solution. And we were able to, first of all, pay to have the tree cut down so the next greenhouse wouldn't get, get smashed by a tree. You know, we wanted to do it the, the best system we could possibly put there in that small space. So, you know, I designed, a, I actually went around the Northeast looking at a bunch of people already doing it to get inspired with ideas and reading books and was able to put together a mishmash of techniques and technologies to create a, a non-permanent, almost completely recycled materials, super insulated bioshelter is only 400 square feet. And a big piece of that, not only insulation, it was double a house's insulation value on the, the back side. But the middle of the greenhouse had almost a thousand gallons of water in tank, big tote tanks. And I think uh, the combination of the, the well-insulated building with the, the thermal mass of the, of the water and the fact that the we, we didn't put a, a foundation in, it was just the soil. So I didn't put perimeter insulation in. So that helped the inside of the, the soil of the greenhouse stay above freezing throughout the year. In fact, on a really cold year, I measured it, it stayed above 40 degrees without any heat, just through the, the mass of the earth and the super insulation and the perimeter insulation. So we it's now been, I don't know, it's well over a decade we still are able to grow citrus in the in that building without any supplemental heat at all. And in fact, one of the citrus plants, the Calamondin, Calamansi, which is like a little half-size sour clementine, it has hundreds and hundreds of fruit consistent throughout the year because now it's it's oh. flowering time is is you know it's perpetual. And so that's to me that's a huge success to be able to grow healthy citrus in the in that kind of climate um there's a lot there's a, a Meyer lemon there now that's producing well and also a, a mandarin orange a super cold tolerant mandarin orange which i'm not remembering the name at the moment but it can go down to like 20 degrees fahrenheit wow that sounds pretty nice to have some sort of citrus growing all year long were there anything from your your work with Paradise Lot in terms of, you know, seeing the system from, you know, start to, to maturity, were there any things that you learned along the way that either you got, you're, you got right and you're glad that you got right or some mistake that you're like, oh, I wish I knew that when I started, like just considerations, whether it was like winter sun angles or access points, something that maybe someone who wanted to create that system themselves might not think of? Yeah, I'd say, Probably some of the big ones were we didn't deal with water flow 
in the landscape very well, both for management, but also for catchment and use later. So that was huge. We, we never, never really solved that issue. We were on city water. And so the, the, the deep mulch system that we did on the whole site helped a lot throughout the years, but we definitely did a lot of watering in the first three to five years of stuff that to get them established with city water. And that was, that was a challenge. What else? Well, this is kind of funny. This came on later, a little later, but we d- we'd never designed the garden to be kid-friendly. Both of us ended up having boys with our partners. And so that was a little bit of a challenge or wasn't really a traditional place for them to play there. But they, they found ways to use the space for fun. A lot of digging happened happened because a lot of dirt around, a lot of water play because we did have a little pond. You know, they loved, love, love, love adventuring and finding f- the fruit. You know, the fruit was pretty much from May to October. There was something fruiting every every month pretty much. So that those all th- things work for, for them as boys growing up. But, you know, the traditional lawn where you play lawn games wasn't available. We didn't kick a ball around. So what else? Uh, you know, I think another piece that we didn't quite understand until we started doing it is there was a lot of experiments. And, you know, some of the experiments were pretty amazing to experience and see whether they were successes or failures. But some of the experiments were really a problem that were some of them were still dealing with. So, like, we planted hotunia. Oh, uh, oh no! In in the one of the front beds on the front side of the house, not in the back. But we didn't realize how much it would spread, and so that that actually took many years to start to extinguish through various means, and it wasn't easy. It's still there in some places, and you just we just have to manage it. Yeah. The reason is, is because it's, it's a run running plant, but it also is very, very, very shade tolerant. And so it can run under other things really easily. And we didn't, we didn't quite understand that things like that, you know, even bamboo, we, we have a bamboo grove in the backyard in a rhizome barrier. We, we knew intuitively that rhizome barriers are 80% effective, which means they're not effective. <laughs> it's definitely, we have to manage it every year, every other year, because the rhizomes jump jump the barrier all the time. Because the, the it really mulches itself really well and the mulch turns into soil and then they just, they essentially grow through their own mulch. So the running things, and then, you know, there are tree and shrub and other experiments that, you know, things either were too small and weren't productive enough, so we took them out, or they were too big and they became a problem and we had to either manage them more than we wanted or had to rip them out. So, you know, on a scale like that, when you're experimenting a lot, have the, the income and the, and the time to do that and the interest, then in some cases it's fine. But if someone wanted a, a more stable system, you know, it, it, does, it does become an issue. And then I guess the last thing is fencing probably in most landscapes can be a challenge. And, and it really was a, a factor for us, for various animals throughout the, the, the time we were there or the time I was there, you know, skunks and cats and dogs and people. And it's a different, I get a different species makeup in, in an urban environment than a rural environment, but the systems you have to put in place are still necessary. 
<laughs> sure. Sometimes when you plant for wildlife, nature doesn't discriminate. You get whatever wildlife you get. Yep. <laughs> it, may, it may or may not be the kind of wildlife you want. So maybe we could transition a, a little bit forwards of the Paradise Lot into, you know, kind of what you're doing now with my understanding is the food forest farm nursery. It looks like, and are there any other projects right now that you're working on? Yes. One, one transitional thing I'll mention is Eric Tomeyer still lives in our duplex with Paradise Lot. He, he's actually very, very soon, hopefully going to be transitioning to a new landscape. That's still to be determined, but it, it might happen. But what's really exciting is we, we found an organization to potentially take on the future care and stewardship of the landscape. In the, in the event that Eric leaves, there's a hope that the gardens and, and building will be purchased by them. And we've already started the process. What's really cool about this organization, which I don't know how public they want to be at this point, so I won't, I won't mention them directly, but they're a, a queer women of color owned cooperative and they're just getting started and, and our, our unit and guard might be the first of many for them to to invest in and have a membership for and the fact that they picked us to be kind of their their jumping off point for their project and their and their vision was pretty inspiring for us and and hopeful and so that's that's pretty great to to kind of wrap up eric and i's chapter at that site for me now that i've done some i've actually gone through what i call my assessment phase over the last five years living here in New York. We didn't really want to jump in right off the bat. So I think we're now in a stage of kind of matching our assessment of our life and our and our vision with the, the actual new site that we have now. It's uh, 10 acres right here. It's kind of on the border of the town of Ithaca. We're literally a mile from the, the town line and it's right on a major highway. So for us, it's a beautiful place. So for us, it kind of, it's a coming home for both opportunity for the, the vision we have and for engaging with a community in a more robust and, and impactful way. We're definitely going to continue developing education opportunities and experiences where people can come and visit and and learn and in this in this case there'll be some small scale stuff still that i want to pursue but i'm really excited about the larger landscape and opportunity to engage more with a larger site and and a landscape that's more wild so there's a lot of you know biodiversity there that is much larger and more interesting to to design around <laughs> We have fox, we have deer, people have sighted bobcat. We have, I was just looking the other day and we're, we're in a region, a very small area where, where the endangered wood turtle lives. And so we have this, it's, it's a national threatened species. So like, to me, that's exciting to help steward a landscape that might help a, you know, endangered species. Another piece of that that's exciting, there's the social piece, which I could get into, but for me as a plant geek and a, and a nature geek, environmentalist, I'm going to design in a more wild sense in that I want to really challenge myself around what mid-succession ecosystem would look like. 
on six or some acres. In my mind, it will be a lot more of what an old field mosaic might look like rather than a backyard food forest. And that, to me, that's, it's very new and interesting. I think there's a lot of opportunity to make a landscape even more low maintenance because you're essentially even more integrating plants into a landscape that will just thrive and, and be resilient on their own. Like, for example, there is a plant on my landscape that Eric showed me that I didn't even know was there. It's called, one of the names is Raisin Tree. It's a viburnum and it, it has these kind of black wrinkled berries in the, in the fall and they dry up on the tree. And when you eat them, they're kind of raisin-like. Why not encourage that to grow some more? You know, Actually, Mike, Mike and I just tried that, the raisins from that, I believe. No, um, what we had was Japanese raisin tree. The one that Jonathan oh, is talking okay. about is the, I believe the wild raisin, like the, the, the native viburnum. What we had was the Japanese introduction. But you got the idea anyway. Yes. I didn't know there was a Japanese one. That's cool. I should check that out. So for me, I we already have uh, the, the beginnings of about a one acre agroforestry planting in place that has been developed over the last two years, three years now. This would be the third year. It's more of what you would think of a woodland design rather than a, a backyard a home garden or something. Because we, we're, you know, we're doing timber trees in there. We have like pecan and honey locust and black locust and oak it's a totally different scale and i'm i'm working with species that I, I have very little experience with so far but i'm excited to to try it out and so the more open woodland landscape that you you're sort of working with now what are the advantages you see i mean you mentioned lower maintenance because you know if if the trees are planted less less densely there's maybe less management in terms of, you know, having to reduce competition, maybe like pull back on this ground cover or, or prune this tree, because if they're spaced wider, you're maybe not going to have quite as much competition there. Are, are there other benefits? I mean, do you, do you think that there's more, potentially more biodiversity from increasing the amount of herbaceous material that's in the, the landscape as opposed to that sort of dense forest cover? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we designed the Paradise Lot Food Forest, Edible Forest Garden System in, Hol in Holyoke, we were very purposeful knowing that in the Northeast, a mid-succession food forest would be the most productive because that's that's what the ecosystem tells us. So if you look at the the energy efficiency of, of a mid-succession kind of sub-shrubs, a few tree type system, that's the the most the most efficient use of photosynthesis in that mid succession. So I, I knew I know already that 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 the energy is better utilized by the ecosystem. And so I think what I would probably end up doing is it would be low maintenance in terms of not having to water and weed as much. I think where where my energy would go towards my my labor would be a lot more pruning and maintenance of overgrowth that then could be utilized for chop and drop to build the soil. We're going to have a wood stove, so we'll be able to harvest our fuel for our, for our heat, for our house. I want to probably at some point have enough to do more biochar to also jumpstart the soil biology and systems 
And I also see all the, these quote unquote extras as potential future enterprises too. So like, you know, if I start to produce enough biochar, just kind of like with my nursery, I overproduced perennial vegetables. So it became a nursery opportunity enterprise. I see if I plant the system in a certain way, I feel like the enterprises will start to, to pop out. One enterprise is I'm planting hybrid poplar and hybrid willow on the landscape because I know now that they are really, really love the, it's a kind of a, during wet years, it's definitely good for the willow and the poplar type trees that can take wet feet in the wintertime. Uh, They thrive. And so the poplar I see as a rotational wood coppice within the next five years where I get straight pole wood that I can chop up for people going on camping trips. I can get $5 a bundle. And so that's a real easy kind of product to come out of a landscape like that with there's essentially besides the planting and keeping the deer away, almost zero maintenance with a benefit. When you prune, you're creating logs to sell. (laughs) That's just an example of kind of how I see some of these species becoming useful. Gotcha. I'm curious, when you say you're working with some species that you've never worked with before, are you potentially integrating nut trees into the landscape? Or what are what are your, in terms of some of the larger long-term species, tree crops, I suppose, what are you thinking about? Well, it's both the, the shrubs, a lot of shrub shrubby things that I never really have done a lot of digging or planting or, or maintaining, like our site will be great for elderberry. For example, we, we only had one elderberry in Holyoke and it, and actually it was later in our design many, many years after we initially planted the plants, we put that in. So I don't have a lot of experience with it, but I do know on our site, they're on our site. And I know there are places on our, in our landscape where we can plant many more of them and things like that. I mentioned the, the raisin tree is another one that is kind of elderberry like it likes it, it can take wet feet and only grows you know 12 feet tall doesn't get much bigger maybe 15 but the yeah the the big boys like oak i planted about probably a good 50 acorns this last fall to see if i can it's like a, a little bit of an acorn swarm i wanted to see in, in about a 30 foot long raised bed to see if I can get enough to grow fast enough above browse height because the deer pressure is pretty intense there. And then the vole pressure, which is a little rodent, a native rodent, they, they're pretty intense. They girdle trees pretty easily there. So I'm trying to reduce my use of plastic tree tubes because they're very expensive and they're pain in the ass to maintain. So I'm starting to do some, some techniques where I, I'm just going to be putting out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees, hoping that some of them will make it. But yeah, this one oak I collected from, from Cornell. Cornell is a great, the Botanic Garden is a great repository of material. Some of those oak trees over there are improved varieties. I found Ken Ashworth, which is a Quercus microcarpa. It was a, I think it's St. Lawrence Nursery, whatever, 30 or 40 years ago. It's one of those sweet white oaks. So I actually was quite astonished. One tree I found was literally, you could eat fresh. There was hardly wow. any bitterness. That's really impressive. And 
you know, my hope there's a lot of oak around, so I don't know what the seedlings will produce. They, you know, some of them might be similar, some of them might be non-similar, just because they cross-pollinate. But my hope is I'll get a dozen or so out of it that are also sweet acorns. So to me, this is a new adventure. Yeah, I've heard of there's a, uh, there's a swamp white oak cultivar called the lint white oak that is supposed to be low so low in tannins that you can't even perceive them. I guess there's different sort of types of tannins that oaks can have and certain ones our tongues can pick up on and other ones they don't. And so certain cultivars or certain varieties or seedlings will produce more or less of those, those components. But that's exciting that you were able to find one that was sweet like that. I've never had a, a sweet acorn before for, for people listening who who don't know most acorns have a high tannin content you have to go through a process of leaching to make them edible but there are certain types that have like i just was saying less less tannins and if you're like me you don't like to process or take time to like remove compounds from edible products it's great just to like pick it off the tree and eat and eat fresh so is the plan that once Eric potentially sells the place and moves on, is he going to come up there and you guys are going to be growing out in the upstate New York landscape or is he going off somewhere else? Yeah, that's, that's still to be determined, but I, I would say that he's probably not going to move to a colder climate. He's pretty much clear on that one. I, even though I'm, I have the potential to, to uh, draw him forth, I don't think, I don't think that's in the, in the stars. No, he he really like like I am getting into wanting to be in a bigger landscape. He is also going down that road, and you know, for those that follow Eric, he's been very much in the last I don't know eight years now been a super amazing writer and and activist around climate change, writing books about that and co-authoring books. He really wants to be in a landscape where he can try these larger systems, you can try out these larger systems with, with bigger and more robust trees. Just because, you know, in, in Holyoke, our biggest tree was probably our pawpaws or maybe our persimmon. Our persimmon, I think, is our biggest tree. But, you know, this one tree, self-pollinating American persimmon, you can't, once, it's an amazing tree and we love it, but it, it, gets, it gets a little old. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I, after only a few years of being in this realm of experience, I too want, already want like a six acre clean slate to plant chestnuts everywhere and just sort of uh, have those larger format experimentations. Are, is part of the reason why you're not planting some of those more unusual fruit trees just because of the immense deer and bull pressure out there? Oh, I'm going to try everything. I mean, I, I have six uh, improved grafted pawpaws already in the ground. I'm going to be doing a bunch of different kinds of persimmon varieties in the system. You know, pretty much we're going to have, I'm going to try to try everything I possibly can. I'm even excited, more and more excited about, I, I don't know if you know, we didn't mention my fig tree work over the last six years or so, but I actually read an article that listed the edible fig as a animal fodder. I'll grow them for fruit, of course, but I have some varieties that are seem to be more hardy than others. And I'm going to grow them as a dieback perennial because I think I can get them to be in three to five years, I can get them to be large multi-stem plants, probably six or eight feet easily in zone 5B6. 
they produce so much foliage once they're established. It, it's quite an amazing thing to consider them as a, as a fodder for livestock. I haven't heard of, of figs for fodder. I know some people will feed mulberry leaves to their animals. So it's the same, same family, at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing mulberries too. There's definitely a, a challenge I've been noticing that the hybrid varieties that are more of the white type tend to they get there's a disease here that they get and it really hits them back. But I've had a big success now with Illinois Everbearing. I'm going to definitely do some more grafting of that. I had some success with some grafting. It's a delicious fruit and it's very, very fast growing. And that's definitely one that I'm going to, you know, I want to have animals in the landscape because I'm not going to be able to maintain these systems just with me and my family and volunteers. I want to be able to have a reason to to mulch figs every year or chop and drop my fast-growing grasses. So I'll have Arundodonax, which actually I've had some success with, which is the giant reed grass. Even though I've had some challenges with yellow groove bamboo, I'm probably going to put a grove of that in somewhere. So maybe for a second, we should touch on the figury greenhouse i was when, when i came up and visited you last year i was pretty astounded by it and actually that was the first time i ever ate a ripe fig you gave me that experience so yeah I, and it's, yeah ever since then i've kind of delved into this black hole of researching cold hardy figs for connecticut and actually we ben and i were just at the connecticut agricultural experiment station where they're doing some in-ground research there was pretty impressed by some of their plants. Have there been any standout varieties for you that you like better than others? I, I think I got St. Rita from you and a few other cultivars that I'm forgetting the name of now, but I'm interested, you know, just to hear what it's all been about. Sure. I'd say from my geeky research over the last five years that I had to cut myself off because the 500 varieties of figs, you could like spend the rest of your life trying to understand them but for the few that I did the research on that seemed like would be short season enough and hardy enough and delicious enough for my particular situation the one that stood out in the last three years for me is a fig called Floria and the reason I like it is because it's it's very hardy it's very productive it's early so it's one of my earliest figs it's late August early September September and you know it's medium sized so I'm going to try that one outside without protection probably next year I'll put a bunch in the ground because I have lots lots of cuttings that I can just experiment with for fun uh, the other one is the St. Rita I feel like that's close second in terms of its hardiness its size but one thing I want to one, one variety I want to do some more thinking about there so most of the ones I have are either kind of purple, brown, or blackish varieties like uh, Rondé Bardot. But the, I'm really excited more and more with the green varieties that have more of a strawberry jam flavor and they're much bigger. And the, But the challenge with those is getting them to, they're more like a 90-day fig where the other ones I was mentioning were 70-day figs. So you really have to have that like last month uh, protection and heat, enough heat to get them to ripen to full size the fruits. And so those are the ones that I think have a lot of potential for like retail 
opportunities and lots of food per fruit. But, and there's a couple of those that have, I haven't done a, a lot with those because I didn't find many that were early seasoned that were large fruited or even hardy. So two that I have there, one is called White Triana, which is from a guy, this guy, Joe out of Boston. And there's other ones too that are similar, Adriatic, JH Adriatic, that fruits around the same, uh, uh, ripens around the same time. There's a, I think it's called Brooklyn White is one that is more yellow, but it's much bigger, but that's more of a later fig, but it's supposed to be hardy. But yeah, like they're more like in the line of like Adriatic or honey fig or kind of two different of the larger yellow green figs. I don't, I don't have a lot of experience with those, but they have a lot of potential. I think the one that Connecticut is probably able to do a lot more with those varieties, but up here it's the, the kind of Chicago, Chicago hardy types or the uh, Celeste types or the, the Ronde d'Arbardo or the the Violet de Bardot, those are the medium to small kind of black to purple figs. Ronde Bardot definitely is in my top five for, for quality, all the qualities I like and characteristics. The problem I'm finding though, and I read this early on and I didn't want to believe it, but it doesn't like to be pruned for the sec for the next season. Like, so I found, I planted one against a foundation here on this farm where I'm living at right now, not I'm in between the two farms at the moment. It's a four-year-old tree. And last year we had to cut it back pretty hard to get it to overwinter in the ground with some protection. And it just didn't produce fruit here on the, on the new canes. And I read that it, it doesn't really like to be pruned. So that one has a lot of potential for unheated high tunnel production. I think because it's early and hardy and, and grows really well, but it won't work outside, I don't think. I think you probably just turned a lot of our listeners on to the world of cold climate figs. There's a lot there. We, we all need to be working on it because it's a tree that we haven't done enough with. I well, that's think. one of the things I was going to ask. Do you know if anyone's doing like breeding work with figs? Like, how, I mean, I, I know the way figs pollinate is fairly complicated and usually in the wild at least involves wasps. So it's not like a typical flowering plant that I'm used to working with. But you know, of course you could do some, some sort of selection from just growing out seeds perhaps from these cold hardy varieties. Like how do you see the, the breeding work happening or, or is it happening? Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about that, but for sure there's breeding work and there has been over the years. Unfortunately, it has to be in a warm situation and with wasps. You can't do it otherwise. Wow. So tree breeding is already pretty difficult, but, when you, but it has to be done with wasps. Yeah. Additionally, that's that adds a whole nother layer of yeah. complexity. Uh, LSU did a bunch of work for many years and they created many varieties, but that was, you know, it's in Louisiana. So that, that tells you the kind of place you'd have to be. And uh, California has done some breeding work. Right. So I, some of the plants that I have in ground, I acquired from you from Food Forest Farm. To our listeners out there, if they are interested in purchasing any divisions or cuttings, uh, from you, where can they, where can they find you at? Yeah, so I would say, thanks for asking about future opportunities. I would say in the next uh, three years, for sure, we'll, we'll get our 
work and focus and inspiration going again at Food Forest Farm in Ithaca, New York. And most likely you can get access to that, that new frontier of our work at foodforestfarm.com. I would say we've decided on a name for the new land. Uh, we're going to call it a long spoon. We don't know yet how that will manifest as a entity, but there, there will be tours, there will be workshops, there will be skill shares, there will be some kind of food and culture hub is what we're calling it, where we want to engage our local community in, in some of these really interesting systems that we've been talking about, particularly in being in a rural place. Um, many people in that are listening to this might know, you know, how we've been bombarded by fascists and the right wing over the last many years, and it's just going to get worse. And so my hope is to inspire people around me in rural areas to see the landscape in a new light, one that can heal, one that can bring inspiration, uh, one that can help us see that uh, hate and discrimination and lack of love for fellow human beings and, and the earth is a bad idea. You know, we don't want to punch the, the horse in the mouth, so to speak. Look, the, look, look at the teeth of the horse. I don't know. What, <laughs> look at gift horse yeah, in the mouth. The, is that the, it? The gift <laughs> horse in the mouth or whatever. You know, we, we, we need to be kind to each other and, and our, and our soil. And right now, I'd say it seems to me that in general, the mainstream doesn't, isn't going down that road very well. <laughs> I, I would say there are people doing great work and there are amazing projects out there already. And that's in, inspiring to me. I'm not saying that all is lost, but we got to work harder and we got to come together. And I think a regenerative, perennial, productive landscape is one tool, one way to help guide us in the right direction. What a lovely way to wrap everything up, wrap up our discussion for today. Cool. Thank you, Jonathan, for coming on and talking about your passion, your love, your work. And we're all very grateful that you're out there doing it. Seriously, I would say that inspiration is really maybe the silver lining of this episode today both ben and i were inspired to do what we're doing in terms of experimenting in this world of perennial edibles because of paradise lot and because of your work and eric's work so really it's been so influential on us and i'm sure so many other people as well and to our listeners who have stuck around this long I really hope that this episode makes an impact on you or your family and changes things for the better for you and your community and our collective future. Thanks for sticking with us and see you next time.